The sermon text this morning is Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I want to first thank everybody for a couple of weeks ago. You threw a nice little party, and uh, we were surprised, uh, but really appreciate the recognition of the 20 years of service. And we were genuinely surprised and, and just very, very thankful. You know, as we, as we reflected on it later and read through the, the book of letters that were sent, I think what two things came away, uh, Carol and I came away with. Number one would be uh, just the uh, specificity that many of you had uh, with the experiences in the ministry over these past number of years. It's just amazing to me the amount of sacred moments that a pastor can have with the people over those many years. A lot of, a lot of sacred moments. And also, many of you gave really great word to Carol's role in, uh, in the ministry. It, it, she does play a huge role in the ministry of this church and, and in, in my life, and you guys gave great word to that, which I was very, very thankful for. So um, my, our hearts were overwhelmed, and it, it kind of caused us to sit and think, well, it's been 20 years we've been here, and we kind of did a little bit of walk down memory lane, uh, but it also, you know, Lord, what do you have left for us in these days? And so it was a, it was a cool, a neat point of transition for us to look back, but also to be uh, prayerfully looking forward. And it got me thinking that transitions are important. We have one here in the book of Romans. Romans, we're making a transition not just back into the book of Romans, but actually into the second part of Romans. Now, you know Romans is really divided in, in two parts. 1 to 11 is, is heavy in theology. Uh, not totally, but heavy in theology. And the second half is really heavy in practice. Um, and so we're making that pivot point now. So I want to get in your minds, Paul as the author of this letter, has been at pains to give us just good, rich, dense theology. You remember now, the whole book of Romans is driven on this idea of how can a man or woman be reconciled to God? How can we be made right with God? That's the question Romans is trying to answer. And, and if you remember how he did it, he, he did it by laying out in the first three chapters the problem that we have. I mean, that men or women, slave or free, Jew or Greek, it doesn't matter. Uh, he kind of sums up in the first three chapters, all of us have sinned and fallen short of glor the glory of God. We kind of know this, I think, intuitively. We know that things are not as they should be. We know that things don't work out. We don't change very quickly. We have a hard time kind of putting into practice and keeping into practice those resolutions that we make. So in the first three chapters, Paul kind of rolls out the problem that humanity has with its creator. Now in chapter, at the end of three and four, um, Paul begins to speak about the, the hope that we have, the solution to this problem. And he introduces, of course, the role of Jesus as the one who bears our sins and reconciles us to God, that we, through faith in his work, are reconciled to God. Now that, if, if we know that we're having the problems that we are, that becomes very good news. But it's even followed by chapters 5 through 8. 
he begins to roll out the blessings of we're reconciled to God. We have peace with God. In chapter 6, we learn that we're given a new life, a new life to, to fight sin. And we need that new life in chapter 6 because in chapter 7, uh, there is the ongoing struggle we have with sin. Chapter 8 is a high watermark. Remember chapter 8? You're given the Spirit. The Christian has the Spirit. He has the gift of adoption. You're a child of God. And he is being changed all the way to that final day. And do you remember the promise at the end of chapter 8? What's he say? He says, hey, you know what? I'm convinced neither life nor death, angels nor demons, things present nor things to come, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That is heavy. That's good news. Nothing will separate us. Now, when you go to chapters 9, 10, and 11, remember it was a little confusing? I, I think there, uh, Paul is vindicating God. You know, because all the, at least the Jewish population in the church would have said, well, if God's so faithful... And if nothing can separate us, then why did the nation of Israel reject her Messiah? And I think there Paul says, well, it's because not all Israel was actually Israel. And then he ends in chapter 11 with this idea that to him be glory forever and ever. In other words, Paul takes us in those 11 chapters to the height of the glory of God. Well, then we come to chapter 12. What are we going to see here? Well, you get right back to earth. Because Paul's going to begin to tease out what does it mean to live in light of the salvation. So if you're a Christian here, and all those things I've just mentioned in the first 11 chapters, if they're yours, then, then what do we do with it? How do we live? And what Paul's going to speak about in 12 to 16 is all the practical outworkings of what it means to be living the life of a Christian. So, so, and Paul does this throughout his letters, right? You have Colossians, Ephesians, many of the letters where Paul speaks about who we are in Christ, then he speaks about what we do in Christ. He calls us to understand the creed of the Christian faith, and then he calls us to live in the conduct. Theologians call this justification and sanctification. He justifies us, he forgives us, but then he calls us now to walk in the forgiveness that we have. Now remember this, any good doctrine will result in godly living, and that's what he's trying to do here. So in chapter 12 in particular, he begins to explain, here's what the Christian life is. So if you're a Christian here, this should be like 101 for you. This is the introduction to what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean? How do we relate? And what he's going to do, chapter 12 all the way through, he's going to tell us how we relate to God in these first two verses that we look at, how we relate with ourselves and the church in chapter 12, 3 to 8, and then how we relate to people that we love and people that hate us, how we relate to the government, how we relate to the law, and ultimately, how do we relate to people that we dispute with over issues of the church? So he's really going to give us some, this is what the Christian does. So for, for many of you, it may be Christianity 101, but, but I hope it'll be a reminder to you as to how we ought to relate to God if we understand his salvation. Uh, so we're going to do it in three ways. I'm going to make it in all C's just because I love those alliterations. You know, celebration, consecration, and change. So celebration, we're just celebrating God for the mercies that he's given to us. And we're going to see in chapter, in verse 1, that we, we celebrate. He's telling us, hey, the motivation of the Christian life ought to be, ought to be because of his mercy. In other words, we want to be a Christian. We want to walk out what it means to be a Christian because he's been so kind to us and merciful. And then we're going to see that this Christian life, the nature of the Christian life, the second point, 
the nature of the Christian life is one of consecration. We give ourselves to God fully, completely, happily. And, and then thirdly, and, and that is the, the, the result of the Christian life will be change, that will be transformed. Things will look different. Your life in the Christian faith should be different one year from now. I don't know how different it will, but it will be different. So let's look at each one of these three. So first, this motivation of the Christian life. What's the motivation? Well, you see it there in verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, and sisters, by the mercies of God. So before he tells us about what it means to be a Christian, giving yourself, you know, presenting your bodies to God, before he talks about what we do, he reminds us of what he's done. So by the mercies of God. So in other words, before he asks you to sacrifice yourself, before he asks you to give yourself to God, he says, consider the mercies of God. Now, don't forget where you've been, right? We, we can never forget who we were. So if you go back with me in your mind to chapter 1, he said all of us are without excuse. All of us were, we didn't honor God, we didn't give thanks to God, uh, we were selfish, we were smug, we were self-confident. In fact, in chapter 3, he says not one of you was righteous. Not one of you. Your throats were open graves. No one sought God. So you have all of creation rebelling against God. And he sums it up in that verse in chapter 3, that all of sin and fall show the glory of God. That's where we were. We were radically lost. So, so here's the hard news of the Bible. The hard news is that on your best day, on my best day, we were sinners without hope. We couldn't reconcile ourselves to God. We can't heal ourselves. We can't fix the relationship. We can't change ourselves. We were like people. Uh, you know, drowning in the ocean, knocked unconscious, sinking beneath the surface of the water and beginning to breathe in death. And Christ had to come and rescue us. That's what he had to do. He had to rescue us. If you don't buy that, if you don't think the Bible teaches that, then you're always going to think you have enough in you to please God. If you just try hard enough, I promise you, you'll have a light life of frustration. But the Bible teaches that we're radically lost. On our best day, we're lost. We needed to be rescued. We needed him to be merciful to us. And that's what we find in the first 11 churches. When he says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God, here's what he's saying. God has sent Christ to come as a sacrifice for our sins. He's our substitute. Uh, Christ has come to bring us peace. He's come to reconcile us to God. He's come to give us a new life that we can fight sin. He's come to give us the spirit that we might be adopted as his children. He's come to give us the promise that we'll never be separated from God. All these promises laid out in the first 11 chapters, you and I are to be mesmerized by, contemplating, thinking. I know some of you are going through some tough straits right now, and so it, you know your minds are kind of focused on your suffering. I'm praying that you would lift your eyes up to see, but all these mercies are transcendent. They're eternally true. You may be going through a tough, difficult time right now, but those truths are meant to lift you. Or maybe you're having the best time of your life and things are going great for you. Don't lose sight. These are better. The mercies that you see here, they are better. They're better. And what Paul's saying is, if you want to walk as a Christian, you need to be motivated by the mercies of God. Is that what motivates you? Uh, so, so are you motivated to love your wife sacrificially or love your husband? Are you motivated to be faithful at work, to be honest? Are you, are you motivated by mercy or by fear? I think many of us are motivated by fear. We, we fear God. 
We don't want to make them mad. We don't want to lose blessings. But let me tell you this. If, if the Christian life is to, be, be, is to be obedient, and our obedience is motivated by fear, you will be one tired person soon. It, it's hard. If you're driven by fear, you're always going to be fearing that you're not doing enough. You're going to be fatigued. You're going to be tired. You're going to feel resentful. Does God know all that I'm doing? Have I done enough? It may lead you to a point of just giving up and saying, forget it. It's just too much trouble. Or if you're motivated by fear, it doesn't sustain you when you have trials in life. When troubles and trials come into your life, you begin to think, he's punishing me. I haven't been obedient enough. I guess he's, he's giving me back what I deserve. If, you are, if you're motivated by obedience, or if you're motivated by fear, if you're just trying to be a Christian because you're scared of God, you're denying the gospel. See, the radical thing about Romans is simply that God has chosen to love you by his own choice. Your acceptance and love by God is not rooted in what you're doing. God has chosen before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless. He loves you now. He accepts you now in Christ. Being holy and acceptable, that is rooted in the work that Christ has done for you. This is part of the mercy, and this is what motivates us. See, if you're motivated by fear, you will just slide right into legalism, moralism, and this discontentment with God because you'll never be satisfied. Do you see that what Paul's doing is he's saying, I want you to be motivated by mercy. All that God has done for you, that, now we begin to serve and we begin to follow Christ out of gratitude, not out of some sort of repayment. I mean, when you consider all that he's done, does your heart not begin to grow with affection? I mean, when you think about, if you really get the handle, I once was lost, but now I'm found, then you love him. And your heart begins to swell with affections for him. And motivation then is there to walk this Christian life. In fact, Paul really wrote his whole letter for this. If you go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 5, he says these words, he says, he says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. In other words, he's saying that he has been called to be an apostle to bring about obedience of people through faith. In other words, our obedience is motivated by a faith that trusts in the mercy of God to save. And th this is why when we sing love, so Isaac Watts song, you know, amazing love. I was going to sing it for you. <laughs> Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's what he's speaking about, this idea of just this amazing love. In fact, John Calvin said that you would have to have a heart of iron to not be melted by the mercies of God. Uh, so so that, do you contemplate these mercies? Do you think about these things? When you go to walk as a Christian, do you think upon all that he is and all that he's done? I've got to be honest with you, I didn't. I mean, I, I was years in the faith, and I didn't understand it. I, I'm the older brother type, uh, so I'm always thinking, I've got to do, 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 you know, I've I, I got to work. And it took years for me to really understand, I, I need to bury my mind in the mercies of God, and that will create the fuel for me to begin to walk 
with the efforts and the sacrifice, because he's calling you to present your bodies as living sacrifices, that's no small task. And you need to be motivated to do that. And he's telling it's the mercies of God. You know, back in 73, uh, I remember the, it was a major gas crisis. Many of you weren't even alive. In 73, you had to park your car at the gas station the night before to get in line to get gas. There was such a shortage. The Middle East countries had just stranglehold, put a stranglehold on the oil supply, couldn't get gas. And if you got gas, you'd maybe get five, maybe eight gallons of gas. And, and the prices jumped. You ready for this? They jumped from about 35 cents a gallon. Now, that's more in 2019 dollars to 45 cents or something crazy. It was a 40% increase. But here's the point. Nobody was going anywhere. Nobody was doing anything because you couldn't burn the, you didn't have the fuel to go anywhere. The Christian life is going to operate on the same measure. If you don't um, just immerse yourself in who God is and what he's done in these first 11 chapters, the motivation for you to walk by faith is going to be a deep challenge for you. So think about that. Think about, where was I before he opened my eyes? I was lost. Now I've been found, and I've been found by his mercy. So that's what the first thing Paul does. The mercies are the motivation to be, to walk in the Christian life. Secondly, look with me in the second half of the first verse, because he says, he, sp he explains the nature of the Christian faith. In other words, what are we motivated to do? Well, he tells us, he says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's, what, that's the nature of the Christian faith. Do you know that? So to be a Christian means that you're presenting yourself to God as a living sacrifice. Kind of an oxymoron, living sacrifice. You know, It's living, but it's a sacrifice. It's meant to draw our minds back to the Old Testament, to the temple. And what he's saying, what does it mean to present your bodies as a living sacrifice? It means you give all of yourself to God. I mean, there was no sacrifice offered at the temple that was kind of offered, or it was halfway offered. A sacrifice was wholly offered. In other words, he's saying that when you give yourself to God, you're giving everything to God. You're not giving your Sunday mornings or Sunday afternoons, or even if you're a Sabbatarian, your whole Sunday. You're giving all of your life, your dreams, your visions, your plans, your children, your marriage, your work, your work relationships, your money. Oh God, I dedicate it all to you. I, I give it all to you. That's what he's saying. But notice he also says, present your bodies. Our faith is not just a faith of the mind. You know, we often tell our kids, just give your heart to Jesus. Well, go ahead and go, give your heart and your body to Jesus. Now, Paul was probably speaking about some Greek philosophy that kind of came into the church, and the Greek philosophy says, well, your body is a tomb. Your body is wicked. Don't worry about your body. Just dedicate your mind to God. And, and Paul say, no, dedicate your body to God too. God owns your body. He gives life to your body that we want to represent God and dedicate ourselves body and soul to God. Remember now, back in chapter 6, he says, don't present your bodies as instruments of sin. And now he's saying, here, go ahead and present your bodies as instruments of, of righteousness. And what he says is, this is going to bring about a spiritual worship. What do I mean spiritual worship? Well, the word spiritual there can be translated reasonable or logical worship. In other words, he's saying, doesn't it make sense to you I mean, think through this with me. If God has poured out these mercies to you in the first 11 chapters, if he's given you life, he's your creator, he has sent a rescuer for you to say, God, I'm going to give you a day. Hope you're happy with it. Doesn't that seem almost irrational? If he's giving you all this and loving you as he had while you were yet a sinner, 
if he's doing that, to not give him all of ourselves, doesn't it seem almost irrational? How do you view the Christian life? Does this challenge your understanding of the Christian life? When you look at, like, for example, worship. When you think of worship, if you were to come up here and define for the group here what worship is, would you say it's singing? Would you say it's worship style? Would you say, well, it's a place we gather on Sunday? How would you define worship? You know, many of us, I think, we think, well, Sunday morning is a time of worship. That's the time where I, I give my life to God. You know, I come on Sunday morning, we sing songs that are gospel-centered, we hear prayers, we listen to preaching, and we have some fellowship, and then we go home and we get about our business. Is that the way you view worship? Is that the way you view the Christian life? Th- that it's a Sunday morning kind of thing? Because I think what he's saying here is true Christian worship, being a Christian, is the way you speak to one another. That's an act of worship. So, so the way you speak to each other, now, now remember, if we cut God out of the whole equation, then you're going to do it as you do it. But the Christian isn't looking to cut God out of anything. He's dedicating himself to God, or she's dedicating herself to God. So the way I speak to my spouse matters. It matters as an act of worship. The way I spend my money. It isn't just my money. No, God's given me these things. So, so, so it's, it's how do I spend my money? The use of my time. Do I burn it in computer games or do I burn it on faith? What do I do with my time? Do I dedicate it to God at all? So, I mean, look at all the facets of your life because being a Christian is not something that you do a day of the week or in your morning devotional time. Yeah, you devote yourself to God in the morning as you read the scriptures, but then you go to work as a Christian and you work for the glory of God. And all the decisions you make. What this passage does is it destroys this sacred secular split. Well, well, I'm going to focus on God on Sunday, and then I'm going to go about my life. It doesn't afford that. And, and you know what it also doesn't afford? It doesn't afford you to think that being a pastor is better than being a plumber. Being a plumber could be just as holy. Or being a mother, or a father, or being a computer guy, or being a computer girl. It, it, it really doesn't matter because your whole life, You're like, this is what we call the priesthood of all believers. It's a reformational principle back in the 17th century. In other words, Martin Luther said, everybody is a priest before God. We don't need a priest with with a collar and investments. We don't need a monk in a monastery. You and I are priests before God so that all of our lives are lived in dedication to God, motivated by his mercy. Is that the way you see things? Do you see all of your life as under the mantle of God? Or do you keep some parts back? Do you, perhaps your, perhaps the way you view sexuality, is that something that you have? Or, or the time is my time? Or the money is my money? Again, but before I came to faith in Christ, I would go to church and I would give God his due. But then when I left church, I was on my own. And it was my time and my money, and I did what I wanted to. And that really is the bulk, it's a large portion of Christianity. It wasn't until, until all of a sudden I, I, God opened my eyes to his mercy, I began to realize, no, all of my life is his. And so you know what I did after I came to faith in Christ? I said, God, you have it all. You have all my life. Take it. And then I got a call about two weeks later. And a woman had heard I came to faith. And she asked me, would you lead a Bible study in prison? And I thought, eee, I haven't really read the Bible. 
And uh, she said, that's not a problem. Now, I don't know that she saw some latent gift in me. She probably just saw me as a warm body that was willing to do it. But the, the first year, I was being corrected by the students I was teaching. But, but, but he called me. It, but all of life, it doesn't have to be that you've got to get into full-time ministry. It's, you're looking at your work differently. You're looking at your money differently. You're looking at your marriage differently. You're looking at these things. God, how do you, how do you want me to live for your glory? It shouldn't be a burden for me to say this to you. To present your bodies as living sacrifices should be a joy for you. And Paul says it this way. He says, for the love of Christ controls us, that we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for him who died for us and rose again. That Jesus and his mercy moves us. So in fact, the Greek word, when he presents your bodies, it really is, there's a sweetness to it. There's a willingness, a joyfulness to this offering. So think about a marriage. When a husband and wife come together, or a man and a woman, they're getting married. They really are presenting themselves to one another. The man is saying to the woman, I'm presenting myself to you. You have my life. You have my love. You have my full commitment. Every area of my life is exposed and open to you. And I want you to be a part of every... And the woman's saying the same thing to the man. Everything I am is yours. Everything I want. I want what you want. It's emerging. That's what God's saying here. Paul is saying, present your bodies, present your lives to God. Uh, so, so the mercies of God will have the capacity to give us the, the strength to walk in that kind of obedience to God. I just want to warn you, if you don't understand the mercies, the Christian life will be a real pain. It will be very difficult. If you're not constantly going back, this isn't something you do at conversion. This is something I'm going to ask you to do when I finish preaching. That you rededicate your lives. You recommit what you said when you were converted. God, forgive me. I have taken back these corners of my life. I want to give them back to you again. Listen, I want to live for your glory in these areas that I haven't. Okay, so, so we have the motivation of the Christian life is the mercies. We have the nature of the Christian life is that consecration. But what does this result in? Well, you see the change in verse 2. And there's two things that we have to do in terms of giving our lives. Look with me in verse 2. He says, don't be conformed to the world. That's a negative. You know, don't do this. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's a positive. So let me explain both of them. So don't be conformed to the world. Paul's saying this, that if you understand the mercies of God, and you want to live for the glory of God, you cannot be conformed to the world. What do I mean by that? I simply mean you cannot take the world's ways as your ways. You, you, you don't want to be uh, shaped by and molded by the world. Uh, the world has an agenda. The, you know, the culture in which we live has an agenda. You're not to pick that up. You know, the, the world may say this is now right, but you're not following the ways of the world. That, that word for world is age, the spirit of the age. You're not to do that. Why aren't you to do that? Well, simply put, you're a Christian now. Jesus said in John 17, 24, you're not of this world. You've been bought. You've been redeemed. You've been born again. You, you have a, a citizenship now in heaven. And, and so you don't follow the ways. The ways of the world, many of, many of things may be fine, they're just existing without any reference to God. And yet you have a Father in heaven who loves you, all the mercies he's poured out to you, so you just want to live in light of God. And that's for the Christian. But if you're not a Christian here and you're just looking at the faith, it's silly to follow the ways of the world. It's, it's crazy to be conformed to the world. 
Why? Well, the world keeps changing. Uh, what they say is right changes from season to season. I don't, I'm not that old. But on issues of marriage, sexuality, money, government, education, these things have all radically changed in my 58 years. Radically changed. So if you want to follow the ways of the world, then buckle up because you've got a ride. Uh, bread, remember how we did this a few years back? Bread was good. Bread was bad. Bread's now good. Same thing with eggs. Same thing with butter. All these things, they change. Well, you're going you're to be a chameleon with your life. It, you'll never find a resting spot because the culture's going to keep changing. Uh, but then secondly, it won't satisfy you. There is nothing out there that will satisfy you. Daniel even spoke to it. That even, even the child is born in the image of God. God has built you to not be satisfied by the things of this world. So if you try to follow the ways of the world to find that happiness that's been so elusive to you, you won't, I, I just want to spare you the frustration. C.S. Lewis said it eloquently. He said, most people, if they had learned to really look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or we first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us. These are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can ever really satisfy. So he's simply saying, saying this, that, to follow the ways of the world is to be on a path of great discontentment. So let me ask you, to what degree are you influenced by the world? What do you read? What do you listen to? What, what drives your views on things? What, so I like to ask people, what informs your views on politics, for example? What informs them? Is it, is it God or is it the world? What informs your views of marriage or sexuality or life and death issues? What informs your views? Now, if you say, well, I make my own opinions. No, you don't. Nobody does. Everybody's a product of their culture. You can't go off in a corner and somehow erase all the cultural influences that you have been hit over all the years. You're a product of the culture and other voices that you've received. It always, you cannot think independent of all your experience. So what informs your views? Is it God? Or is it the culture? And what he's saying here is, if you want to see change, if, if you want to dedicate your lives wholly to God, it has to be informed by God. What does God say on these things? I know God doesn't speak to everything in specific, but he does speak to everything in principle, at least. But that's where we start. doesn't mean that the views of the world are to be chucked to the side just because they're the views of the world, but we're informed first by the view of God. So he says, don't be conformed, but be transformed. You know what that word transformed means. It's kind of the caterpillar to the, to the butterfly. He's saying, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this is the promise to the Christian, that when you dedicate yourselves, when you're motivated by the mercies of God, you dedicate yourself to God, God, I'm going to give you everything. Then you will be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You'll be changed. Paul speaks about it this way in 2 Corinthians. He says, we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, that is, all of his mercy. We are being transformed, same word, into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
So God transforms us by the Spirit. You notice he says, be transformed. It's hard to be something. You know, that's a passive idea, to be transformed. That's because God has to do this. God, by his Spirit, found in Romans chapter 8, God's Spirit changes us. He applies the word to us. He brings, you know how when you feel conviction over sin, that's the Spirit of God waking you up, leading you to repentance. When you're encouraged to do the right thing because of God, that's the Spirit prompting you and changing you. So this Christian life is that the Spirit begins to change you. But it's not just the Spirit. He says, be transformed. There is an imperative. There's a command there that you also have to engage with the Spirit. This is where the synergy takes place. You cannot engage with God in getting saved. That the justifying work of God is a monergistic work. It's one way God moves, but the sanctifying work is where we join with the Spirit. That means you're reading the Scriptures, you're praying, you're listening to teaching, you're fellowshipping with other people around the Bible, you're allowing them a place in your life to help you walk as a person that's dedicated to God. So be transformed, he says. Now, in other words, you don't have to say, you know, what would Jesus do? Just listen to what Jesus said. You know, that, that would be a way of being transformed. Now look at the fruit that comes in the second half of verse 2. He says that by testing, he says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, as you begin to renew your mind by the Spirit's work and by your engagement around the Scriptures and with the community of faith, you will be able to know what God's will is. That sounds pretty cool. But wh what does he mean by this? Does he mean that, you know, God, should I do the yellow or red car? Go with the red. You know, it, does it work? Should I marry or should I not? Um, I'm going to wait. You know, God, give me your will. Or should I go to this college? I don't think it works that way. I think those are issues of wisdom. I think what he's saying here is God's going to roll out what he wants from us as you continue reading Romans. He's going to tell us how to relate with each other. He's going to tell us how to relate to the government. He's going to explain to us how the Spirit of God is going to lead us in our relationships. The Christian faith is a relational faith. So the will of God is going to be talking about when you read through the rest of chapter 12, don't repay evil for evil. That's the will of God. Don't seek revenge. Show honor to other people. Be in prayer for other people. Obey the government. This is, you want to know what the will of God is? That's the will of God. Obey the government. Try that one on. Or... or, or or don't judge one another. That's the will of God, right? In Romans 14, we're going to hear that. So, so that's, I think, what he's driving at, that when you soak your mind in the Scriptures, the Spirit applies it to you, you're going to know how to live. You're going to know how to live in a consecrated way, motivated by the mercies of God. But just remember this, the change that I'm speaking about, this change is not outward. I don't want you to get rid of the big five. I didn't know this expression before, but fundamentalists will call the big five uh, the dancing, the drinking, the card playing, the theater, and I think there's one more that I forget. You know what it is, but, but we, we look at this outward change, and there is outward change, but the change that's taking place here is first an inward change. In other words, uh, we're not worried about we're not glad. I've dedicated myself to God. I haven't killed anybody. No, what it's saying is don't hate anybody. Uh, we're not saying I've dedicated my life to God because I haven't committed adultery. He's saying, no, don't lust after other women. 
It's an internal thing. It's a fulfillment of the promise in Jeremiah. I will write my law upon their hearts, or Ezekiel 36. I'll, I'll give them my spirit. Life will come to their bones. So the change that I'm speaking about here isn't some outward reformation. It's inward, your ideas, your values, your joys. They begin to change, and then it seeps outward, and everybody sees it. It, can't be, it cannot be hidden. Uh, but this change that I'm speaking about is also incremental. I don't want you to be frustrated. The Christian faith is a very slow bake. Now, for some of you, and I know some of you, have been delivered. Uh, one good brother, alcoholic, boom, delivered. Didn't have taste for the bottle anymore. He was just delivered. But for, and I praise God for that. But for most people, change comes slowly. That's the way the scriptures describe it. Think about how the scriptures describe the Christian life. Farming, that is not a real fast business. Uh, new birth in Christ. You know, babies don't grow up in a week. They grow up slowly, traveling, walking along the road. That's not a fast means of travel. The race, you know, Paul talks about the race. Races are long. So, so we don't want to be discouraged. I want you to have a realistic view that the Christian life, change comes over time. That was the beauty of these letters. I've known many of you for 10 to 15 to 20 years. I've seen you change, but it's been slow. and Sometimes it's been painful, but it comes because he's promised to conform us to the image of the Son in Romans 8, 29. It's slow, but it can't be done. This change won't take place outside of the community. Uh, nowadays, of course, we have this idea of, of Jesus and me in the Bible, and I've got the Spirit, so I'm good to go. I don't need the church. You do need community. You need one another. You cannot grow as a Christian apart from active relationships within the church. You just can't do it. I mean, it just it's implied by Paul. He's not even their pastor. He's just a Christian friend saying, let me appeal to you. Let me appeal to you to present your bodies. He's calling them to account. I hope we can be a church where we are allowed to encourage one another in the faith, even challenge one another. I hope you don't feel like it's intrusive if someone that loves you comes up and says, how can I help you walk more obediently with God? How can, let me encourage you. I hope you don't find that to be intrusive because I think the nature of the Christian faith, that change will come because when you go through 12, 13, and 14, living out God's will, which brings about the change, all takes place with each other. It, it is not an individual faith. It is a, it, it's a corporate faith. We are brought into a family, and the change takes place in the family. There are problems in every one of our families. I get that, and we'll have problems here. But even God in his sovereignty works through the He works his grace even through our own issues, but he brings about a change. So you see here in the text, these two little verses, he's simply saying the motivation of our Christian life is the mercies of God. I don't ever want you to forget that. Every Sunday we gather here and we remind ourselves of how merciful he's been. Why? So as to fill our tank. So this week we can dedicate, we're going to do it differently, Lord, this week. By your grace, I want to dedicate, I want to present my body to you as a living sacrifice. Let's make that promise now. And, and, and let's look for the change. And when you see the change occurring in people over the months and over the years, speak to it. Encourage others. I have seen you change. You have stuck with it. You've gone through struggle. Yeah, are you wavering in faith? Absolutely. Sometimes we may feel like, I don't even know if I'm saved. 
but we continue on. That's what we want to encourage with one another. So let's take a moment now and, and just ask, if you're a Christian here, ask for the Spirit to fill you and convict you and lead you to a place of, God, give me the grace that I need to walk out this week. If you're not a Christian here, I would just ask you to, to speak with God and just ask Him to reveal Himself to you and how He is and can provide true pleasures that this world offers but can't fulfill on the promise. He can. And then I'll pray for us in a moment.